You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. Like Elliot said, I'm Andrew. I'm the student pastor, which means that I regularly get to work with the junior high and high school students. But this morning, I'm happy to be here with you in this current series. And in our current series, we've been looking at how to grow as a leader. We've defined leadership as the power to influence others for good. And you may not have a formal leadership position, but we all lead. We all influence others for good. Who a leader is on the inside will largely determine what we experience of people on the outside. Leaders are like an iceberg. Influence is the part of the leadership iceberg that is above the waterline that we see and experience. And 90% of what drives a leader's influence actually occurs below the waterline. We often refer to this as a person's character. It's who someone is when no one is looking. There are four invisible components that drive a leader to influence others for good. First, we looked at the foundation. Good leaders have loving integrity. Good leaders love, which means they sacrifice to put others first. And they have integrity, which means the truth guides their life. It, it, it guides their decisions. Last week, we looked at the initiative component. Good leaders take initiative. Bad leaders, they hope for the best or don't care enough to put in the work that leadership requires. Good leaders, they step into the messes of life and they speak up. So today, we're looking at the third component, the listening component. Good leaders listen. Now, having the courage to step into a mess and problem solve is great, But the way you choose to step into that challenge, it has a huge effect on whether you create more messes or clean up the ones you started out to fix. This is largely because leadership problems are not just a matter of logistics. They are almost always people problems. We actually saw this on display last weekend at the Oscars when the slap heard around the world occurred. Longtime comedian Chris Rock made a bald joke at the expense of Will Smith's wife, who deals with alopecia. It's a condition that causes hair loss. And in the middle of the ceremony, Will Smith decides the best way to solve that problem is to get on stage in front of millions of people and slap Chris Rock across the face. Chris's words and Will's actions, they tarnished the whole night. Actually, about an hour later, Will Smith won the Oscar for Best Actor, and the Academy Awards organization was left with an issue. Do we let him keep the Oscar? It's a logistics issue caused by a people problem. Sadly, most people, they'll look back on that night and only remember the slap heard around the world. But the, problem, the people problems that we face don't happen on the stage of the Oscars. They usually happen in the lives of people we deeply care about. Maybe a friend comes to you with a problem in their marriage or they're trying to navigate a sin pattern. Maybe your spouse finds out that they're sick and comes to you in tears. Or you notice in your kid's life that they have some character issues that are growing that you need to address. Or maybe they're being bullied at school. You might be dealing with someone at work who has a pattern of complaining. We see problems across all the areas of our life. We see that we need to step in and speak up, but how? What are we supposed to say? You want to help, but not knowing what to say can leave you flat-footed and unable to help. 
we recognize that using the right words are important, and we respect them because we've all experienced the power words have in our lives. They have the power to inspire change or bring pain. A poor choice of words has the power to demolish the influence that we've built in another's life. But the right words can grow loyalty, trust, and goodwill when we're using them for good. Now, I'm a talker. My usual problem isn't that I have too few words. It's that I have too many. But there have been many times in my life where I've seen a problem and wanted to help, but words have failed me. Maybe I I couldn't find the right ones, and so I'd avoid stepping in when I really should have. Or often I'd use the wrong words and make a bigger mess. Words are such an important category in life that when I came across a tool called the response paradigm, it it transformed how I use my words to help others. And I want to share that with you today. The tool, it's, it's called the response paradigm. And a paradigm, it's a way of thinking. Here at Seabreeze, when we talk about paradigms, we're usually referring to a tool that summarizes a truth from God's word about life or leadership. And they're bite-sized, they're small, so that we can remember them and use them in everyday life. Here are the six steps of the response paradigm. Identify, care, clarify, probe, teach, and judge. Use this paradigm when someone comes to you for help or as a leader, maybe you need to provide coaching or correction. Use this paradigm with your spouse, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, or your clients. The purpose of this paradigm is to help us in the moment respond to others in a wise way rather than in a damaging way. And if I could summarize the purpose of the paradigm in one verse, it's Proverbs 12, 18, which says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, in this verse, there are two types of speech described here, rash and wise. Now, to be rash means to act without thoughtfully considering the consequences. So, to speak rashly means to speak without considering the consequences of your words. And this type of talk can range from a small joke at someone's expense maybe being too quick to share your opinion, all the way to blowing up at someone. This type of speech is characterized as harmful because it's impulsive and causes damage. It's unwise. The second type of speech describes someone who wisely uses their words and it brings healing. It actually helps the person rather than hurts them. And that's how I would describe the response paradigm. It's a six-step summary of a wise way to respond to people. Using this tool combats the damage that comes from the usual rash way that we respond to other people. And it sets us up actually to listen and figure out the best way to be a help. I want us to to actually talk through a, a typical scenario where the response paradigm could have come in handy. Now, I'm a dad with a bunch of kids, so that's the material I'm working with, but the idea is pretty universal, so I want you to imagine this scenario with me. You walk into your living room after you've heard one of your kids scream. You see that your oldest child is visibly upset, and their younger sibling sibling is crying. The younger one says something like, Daddy, she yelled at me, she hates me, she told me she hates me, you know, like... 
you walk into a situation and there's already a mess happening. And you get upset and you tell the older child, that was wrong. You don't hate your sister. Apologize right now. Boom. Situation managed. Done. Parent of the year, right? Like, that's how you feel. That is until your oldest bursts into tears and you see a giant bite mark on their arm. You realize, oh, maybe I misread the situation. You ask a few more questions and you find out that the scream you heard was actually just a scream of pain. And when you walked in the room, the younger child spoke first because they just didn't want to get in trouble, right? What had actually happened was that the younger sibling did what was wrong and the older sibling did nothing wrong. Oops, right? What happened? In this scenario, you were rash and you ended up doing the response paradigm backwards. This is actually the way we usually do this. This is the way we, we usually respond. We start with judging and teaching. You walk into a situation. What you did was wrong, and here's why. And so you teach why they were wrong. And then you notice a few more details, and you start asking questions, and then you figure out what really happened. In this scenario, oh, the oldest kid has a giant bite mark on their arm. They didn't do anything wrong. Then you ask a few more questions. You figure out your initial verdict was completely wrong, and you've made a mess. And then you show care. To the older child, you say, I'm so sorry that you got bit. Let's work this out. But the mess got bigger, not smaller, all because we judge first and ask questions later. Now, to be clear, those in authority, a boss, a supervisor, a parent, they have the right to decide whether someone's actions were right or wrong within their jurisdiction. They have the right to judge a situation. Judging is pronouncing an evaluation of what someone has done or said. It's what judges do in the court of law. The problem is starting with judgment. Here are two reasons why. The first, like we saw in our example, is you might lack understanding. And there are several reasons why you might not understand what's going on. But often, it's because the fact-finding or the understanding process is much more difficult and far less fun than just tossing out an opinion. And usually helping others comes at a time that's inconvenient for us. And in order to get back to what we were doing before, we go with our first read of the situation. For efficiency's sake, we sacrifice understanding and we don't ask too many questions. The problem we set out to solve, it actually grows at that point, or we end up creating a whole new one. And even if our read on the situation is correct, and you had a correct judgment, there is another reason why we don't start there first. And that's because being rash reduces trust. When we judge first, people will typically begin to pull back from us. They rightly feel that we've rushed a decision and we don't care about them as a person. So, if good leaders have the habit of listening, we need to curb our instinct to judge first. There is a better way, and I've broken down the steps of the response paradigm into three summary statements that we'll go over as we look at the tool. The goal is for them to help you categorize the steps so that you can remember them and use them. Here's the first summary statement. Good leaders build trust. Everyone is asking the PQT, the prior question of trust. Anyone who comes to you 
for help is asking from the inside, usually, if they can trust you. And it's completely reasonable. Before you follow someone, you need to trust them. You need to know who this person is that's talking to you, if you can trust their judgment or their character. Is it someone who understands what you're talking about? In essence, we're asking if we can trust a person. Building trust is really important, and Jesus understood the importance of building trust. The pinnacle of the story of redemption is when God came to the earth he created. He walked in the world our brokenness made. Hebrews 4.15 says this about Jesus. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So the high priest is a term used here to refer to Jesus. And to Jews of that time, the high priest was viewed as the most holy person. To many, today even, the most holy person is also the least relatable person. There is this invisible barrier that exists in our minds towards them. It's like they have a gene that we don't have. And to us, it makes them unable to experience life the way that we do. I mean, that's not true, but the holy barrier, it actually causes us to pull back. To us, it seems like that person can't relate and actually reduces our trust in them. But in the kingdom of God, it's different. When Jesus came to the earth, he endured temptation beyond what we will ever experience. He's able to empathize with our struggles, which makes him easier to relate to. He knows, even to a greater degree. He knows the brokenness of the world and the things that we deal with on a daily basis. Which is why this this verse continues. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find find grace to help us in our time of need. The outcome of Jesus' ability to empathize is it actually gives us confidence in him. We, we know he understands that he, and that he wants to help us. He has built trust by identifying with us, with our struggles, and showing us that he cares. So that's where we start, too. We look for opportunities to identify with the struggles of the person we're helping and then let them know that we care. That's the first two steps in the response paradigm. We identify and we care makes sense. I mean, if someone's struggling and you can relate, just tell them. Maybe they're dealing with anger towards their kids, or they're lacking motivation at work. They're struggling with self-discipline. They have doubts, or they're insecure about something. You can simply say, I care about you, and I'm sorry you're struggling with motivation. There are times when I struggle with that, too. Tell me what's going on. I mean, don't force it. Maybe you can or can't relate with the exact same thing they're going through. But it is best if you can find something similar, even if you can't relate entirely. The goal, ultimately, with this step is to communicate that you care about them first and that you're there to help. Often, my oldest daughter, she's so cute, she loves crafts and hobbies. And she, she jumps in with both feet to any new hobby that comes her way, but she often skips some of the learning process And so she starts off so excited, bouncing around the house, literally bouncing around the house. It's adorable. And I just know, here in a few minutes, she's going to actually try to do the new hobby, and she's going to run into a roadblock because she's rushed it. And she's going to go from excitement to despair very quickly. When I see that pattern start, and she's at a place where she's struggling, my first inclination is just to think, 
told you this would happen. You know, like I knew it, called it. Well, sure, maybe, but that's discouraging and unhelpful. I really need to identify with her struggle and let her know that I care first. So I say, you seem like you're struggling with your new project. Tell me what's going on. And then she tells me, and I force down the urge to immediately start fixing it or tell her I told you so. And then I just say, I'm sorry, kiddo. It's not fun when things don't go how we want them to. I can get frustrated when my projects get hard. What? How can I help? What's going on? I mean, identifying and caring, it's a simple concept, but it's surprisingly difficult to do in the moment because our tendency is to judge first. You said, what? That's stupid. I can't believe you did that. That is so wrong. Those, those are judgments. And if given too early, they can build a barrier. Now, uh, I have a special note to parents, especially parents of younger kids. If, you, if your kids are younger, when you show that you care and want to help first, you're building trust for the teenage years. When they're younger, you're actually the only place they can really go with their problems. But whenever they hit their teenage years, they have a lot of other outlets. So even though they're simple, their problems seem simple or small, if in their younger years they think that mom or dad just don't understand, that they're quick to judge and tell them what to do, you will become the last person they want to talk to about their real problems in their teenage years. By showing care and identifying with them when they're younger, you're actually creating a unique opportunity to be a key influence in their lives later on in their teenage years. But the paradigm, it's not just for parents. It's for all of us who want to use our influence to help others. Good leaders build trust by identifying and caring. And it's just good to let people know you're not perfect and that you care. That's the first step. Good leaders build trust. Next, good leaders draw out the truth with questions. This was really fascinating to me. Across the four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, he asked 307 questions. Have you ever wondered why Jesus asked so many questions? I mean, he knew the answers. He knew the thoughts, attitudes, and actions of every person he led and came across. He could have saved a lot of time by telling them the right thing to do in every situation, the right thoughts, the right attitudes. He could have done that without ever asking a single question. He had all the information, but he still spent time listening and asking questions. Why? Well, Jesus knew that it was far more effective for those who followed him to discover the truth themselves. It's one thing to be taught something, It's another thing entirely to discover it for yourself. And his mission was about changing the hearts of people and not being the Bible answer man. So he asked questions to draw out the truth. One of my favorite examples of this from Jesus' life actually comes from the New Testament book of Matthew. We find it in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. 
Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And this is a powerful moment for the disciples. After living with Jesus day in and day out, serving with him, seeing the miracles, it was time to see if they knew who he really was. Jesus could have easily just told them, Hey, I'm the Messiah. But he used questions instead. It was important that they drew the conclusion themselves. And in a moment of boldness, Peter acknowledges Jesus' identity as the long-awaited Savior and Son of God. And it was, it was a big moment that happened because Jesus, he asked really good questions. The questions Jesus used here were probing questions. Now, probing questions, they're open-ended questions that help the other person talk. They're not yes or no questions. They usually require longer answers. They tend to start general and get more specific. But whichever type you use, the the purpose is to uncover the broader picture to get more of the truth to be a, a genuine help. And that's the next step in the response paradigm. After we identify and care, we clarify and we probe. And you'll notice a step before the probe step. Because we're not Jesus and our understanding can be wrong, we get an extra step. Before we ask probing questions, we ask clarifying questions. These can be yes or no questions, and they're used to check our understanding of what the other person said. We don't want to misunderstand. It's pretty easy. You do this by summarizing what they said and ask if you heard them correctly. You said X. Is that right? Or maybe you hear a word that they use that could be defined multiple ways, and so you just ask. You use this word. What do you mean? The point isn't to annoy or frustrate with a bunch of questions, but to check our understanding. Clarity is the friend of a listening leader. And after you've clarified something, you can continue the conversation by asking a probing question. And then once you get the answer, you you clarify what you heard, and then you ask another probing question. It's a cycle. You clarify, and then you probe, and then you clarify, and you probe. If you can relate, you sprinkle in some care, and then you clarify, and you probe. You get the point. Keep going until the picture gets clear, or clearer. As we ask the questions and unveil the truth, this is putting us in a really good position to help. Hopefully, actually, by asking questions, we can help them uncover the truth and figure out what they should do next for themselves. We, we want them to be the genius and decide what to do next. Any goal that they make is much more likely to be done if they come up with it themselves. So it's best if we, the, the helper, can ask questions that lead them to realize what's wrong and come up with ne- next steps to take. I wanted to share this paradigm with you today because I love the response paradigm. I don't just use it now in ministry, but I've used this in business and life. Actually, when I was in business, I used this all the time. I used to be a stockbroker, and I worked in an active trading group, but near the end of my time in the financial industry, I had a really cool opportunity with the company I worked for. I got to coach and teach other new stockbrokers. It was a position in the company that pretty much everyone wanted because everyone had been impacted by the teachers and coaches that they used. So they were coming up with a new round where they were doing some trials with new people coming into the the group. But since everybody wanted to be in this group, they held an interview before they let you join. And, you know, of course, I wanted to do this. So I went to the interview 
and they had a fun surprise for everyone interviewing. It wasn't a typical interview. It was a mock coaching session. The, the head of this group sat down. You, you walked in as if they were just a representative. They, they had a computer where they played a real phone call from a real representative talking to a client. And then I was supposed to lead a time of coaching with them. And they just wanted to see how I would do. As a surprise, this was the tool that popped into my head to use in my coaching session. I, I remember asking questions after I identified, because you know, I had been a representative. I knew how it felt to be new, and then asked some questions. And by the end, they, they had actually come up with a few things to do that they could work on in the future. And to not break character, the interview was over, and I just kind of awkwardly walked out of the room because, you know, they didn't, anyway. A week later, I found out that I had gotten the position to join their group to be able to coach and teach. And I just, I was floored because in my mind, all I had done was use this tool. It was one of those moments where I found that the scriptures proved true in real life. It was super encouraging for me. I mean, it's amazing how asking questions, not assuming, and showing you care can be an actual help to someone. This paradigm isn't just for leadership and coaching. It's also a picture of what a good friend or a good spouse or a good parent looks like. But the, the tool doesn't end with step number four. Leading someone to self-discovery is ideal. It'd be great if we could walk away without having to teach and judge, but you can't force self-discovery. And it doesn't always happen. The reality is there are just some things that need to be taught. So, good leaders instruct when necessary. Every person has blind spots. There are things in their life that they can't see, and there are things about life that they don't know. If that is the case, then teaching and judging are necessary steps. In those moments, it's the leaders who listen that have the information they need to give the right input, make the right decision, or correct the right issue. They wait until all the information is out in the open before they say whether something is right or wrong. And this takes patience and it takes discretion. It takes patience because this is not the most efficient form of conversation. Asking questions, letting someone talk, the goal is to open up time for them to talk and to hear the truth. It's not the most efficient form of conversation. And it takes discretion because there are times when as a leader and a friend, you should keep your mouth shut, and there are times when you need to teach and judge. This isn't the most efficient form of communication, but it actually is the most effective and an important thing. We want to use our influence to affect positive change in the hearts of people. And in most cases, to do that, you teach and judge at the end. So those are step five and six. We teach and we judge. Once you've communicated that you care and you listened, you teach. And for me, this is the fun part. You get to share God's perspective and how it applies to their situation. I mean, teaching is showing or explaining something to another person. And then after you teach, if it's necessary, you judge. Again, judging is pronouncing an evaluation of what someone has done or said. And you only need to do that part if it will build the person up or be a help, if it'll help them understand, oh, what I did was right or wrong. If they understand the point 
already and have drawn the conclusion that they've done something wrong, you don't have to teach and judge at that moment. It would feel like piling on. But if you do, when you get to that moment, see the need to teach and judge, you've put yourself in a great position. You've done the hard work of building trust and finding out the truth. You have a clearer picture beforehand. Here's how Jesus responded to Peter. This is how Jesus did it. Matthew 16, 17 through 18. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What Jesus does here, it's a mixture of teaching and judging. The teaching is the part where he says, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then the judgment was at the beginning when Jesus said, great job, dude. You got it. You figured it out. Jesus' judgment of Peter was actually, it was positive. He used Peter's correct assessment to actually build him up and encourage him. Teaching and judging, they don't have to be negative. If you determine that someone's done something right, Use your influence to encourage them, to build them up. There will be times when we do need to correct people, when we need to, to teach and judge and share a difficult truth, a hard truth with them. But regardless of whether you need to share something difficult or something really positive, the ability to speak the truth into someone's life is an opportunity for their lives to possibly be changed forever. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6, puts it this way. It says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy, an enemy multiplies kisses. Our job isn't to be flatterers. Our job is to be trusted friends and helpers. When the truth comes from a trusted source, it can leave a big impact. Some of the hardest things that I've needed to hear came from people that I trusted the most. I can look back at my life, and there are very specific instances where someone that really cared for me shared something really difficult, and it changed the trajectory of my life. I knew they cared because they'd seen my life, I'd seen their life, they listened, they asked questions, and they weren't overbearing. They, they didn't beat me up or overwhelm me by correcting me too much at one time. But that's the temptation. The temptation is to to only correct and only judge. This is what we do first. So several years ago, I learned a really helpful rule. It's called the 90-10 rule. The rule states that if you need to share one hard truth with someone, that you have nine encouragements left to go before you do. It's not a real rule, you know. It's just a good idea that aids the process. The response paradigm has been one of the most helpful tools I've learned. It's had one of the biggest impacts on the way that I communicate with others. It's had the most positive impact on my relationships as I've used it. So I want to challenge you to memorize the six steps of the response paradigm and use it. Use it when your friends come to you for help. Use it to coach an employee that's come across problems. Use it when your kids get whiny or upset. I've been amazed at the way that this tool has, has opened up conversations for me Good leaders want to wisely use their words to do the greatest good. They value understanding, so they're, they're inclined to listen first and then judge when necessary. We all have areas of influence. God, God has placed people in your life that need a listening leader. 
They need a good friend and a good influence. When you see a problem that you think you need to step into, or someone asks you for help, I challenge you to use the steps in the response paradigm. I am confident that God will use it to help you build trust, draw out the truth, and give input when necessary. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that, first of all, you know what we're going through, that we can approach you with confidence knowing that, Jesus, you have endured greater temptation and struggles than we could imagine that we would, we would face. Thank you so much for building trust with us, for being kind and asking questions, and leading us to follow you, even, even if the truth we need to hear from you and your word is difficult. Thank you so much for the way that you care enough to, to guide us and lead us. I pray that this week, each one of us would be able to identify how the response paradigm would be helpful, God, that you'd help us to actually respond in a wise way rather than a rash way so that we can use the influence you've given us in the lives of others to do good, to be a help. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.